City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Here we are, and um, it's City Limits, and it's the um, it's the uh, fourth Wednesday, that right? Am I right there? Yes, I am. Who I knows? The fourth Wednesday of the month. I don't know. <laughs> Lost track, but I think that's it. And uh, it must be, because we've got no special subject, or we've got lots of oh, special yeah. subjects. In fact, we've got three interviews this morning. Um, I'm going to squeeze one in the middle, because there's a rally next Saturday we're going to squeeze in. But uh, our major interview this morning is with Libby Porter, who's um, at um, RMIT. She's at RMIT, yeah. She's the Vice Chancellor's Principal Research Fellow there in the College of Design and Social Context. Yeah, and we've talked to her before about housing issues. People might remember she took picked up the five points the government makes about tearing down public housing and really torn them to shreds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she did visit the um, Jabarung uh, Embassy last week. And um, she's written something about it as well, but we're going to get on to talk about that. And also just in terms of her urban urban uh, qualifications about the how roads are so dominated, etc. Yeah. And, and I guess the irony, I think we all saw the irony last week when the government said it, was, it wanted to declare the Eastern Freeway a heritage site. Yeah. Uh, maybe yeah. A, a white sacred place. Yeah. Um, and while it's uh, tearing down... Indigenous sacred sites. Sacred so yeah. We'll talk to her about that. It's an interesting uh, um, I, thing to explore. I think uh, obviously, like the the Jabbarung Embassy, uh, people would know if they're listening to other parts of other shows on City Limits, is that they're under threat of eviction, and that eviction notice was, uh, I think, due to be served on Thursday yeah. last week. But and nothing has happened as far as no. I know so far. No. But um, obviously, apart from the important issues there, there's also the broader social context of, you know, why Australia chooses to build roads in these ways, to engage in treaty process and then take a step like this yeah. to desecrate sacred Exactly, land. exactly. Yeah. So that's, we'll be talking about that. We're going to be talking to um, Libby about that, but we're going to be talking first up to uh, Gemma... Um, is it name? Yes, that's right, isn't it? Gemma Caparella. Actually, um, Gemma can't make it, but we've oh, got Marie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Update me. Thanks a lot. Yeah, sorry. Anyway, it's a, fo- <laughs> it's a follow-up to last yeah. week's interview we had about the Footscray Park issue because the council met on the issue last night. There was a protest out the front, and we're just going to get an update on what happened last night. So yeah. we're going to be talking to Marie, so I can throw away my Gemma Caparella phone number. <laughs> um, and, uh, Put it in the bin. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we're in the middle of all that, we're going to squeeze in Sue Vittori because um, there's a rally next... Um, Saturday at Coolaroo uh, about the well, it's, it's the group that's protesting about the point about the, all the storage of rubbish etc and the danger of fires and pollution and chemical pollution in the western suburbs and northwestern suburbs of Melbourne and um, Sue is going to talk to us briefly about next Saturday's rally just to give it a plug and hope people can turn up there. Yep, the Anti Toxic Waste Alliance. Is yep, their name. Um, and I'm going to pour us a tea. Lovely. 
That's very nice of me, isn't it? Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, that's very nice what, of me. What are we drinking today? We're drinking, actually, I ended up, I think I put something into something. So I think it's a mixture of white and straight green. Mm. So um, Let's see what this is they're, like. You they're both Asian teas. So. New career ahead of you, perhaps, as a sort of <laughs> I might have tea. created one. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Tea mixologist. Um, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? I just want to mention, because we'll, we'll, we'll go to our interviews fairly quickly today because we've got a rush program, but... Yeah, uh, I thought m- uh, Monday after a weekend um, when there was pretty big news going around the world, um, yep. including international news, mm-hmm. um, the Herald Sun front page was exclusive, Charlotte's miracle escape after tree crushed car, then big headlines saved by headrest. It's all very nice, and I'm sure with a ten-year-old kid, it's um, you know it's quite important in a life. It's probably about a page ten to page twenty story mm-hmm. if you think about it. Mm. This was the biggest news in the whole world, mm. and to make it even bigger, it actually happened the previous Tuesday. <laughs> um, anyway, that's the Herald Sun's uh, idea of things. But then the 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 other front page, the pointers on the front page went to the real news: finals countdown, survivor health strife. That's someone on some telly show. <laughs> and Mum's in a stew. I'm not sure what that's about, but I'm sure it's interesting. Um, well, I mean, you know, nothing else of note has happened, really, has it? Not according. Well, of course, as I said somewhere last week, um, the, the slogan, the news that matters, um, which they put in their ad for themselves, yeah. uh, what matters to them is to make sure we don't know what matters. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that's why this station's so bloody important. Yeah. Um, that we do know what matters. Yeah. But uh, this, I'm going to give you a quiz. Oh, great. Yeah. I love quizzes. Oh, it's basically s- what this whole show is. It's like, did you hear, hear this that. news? I'm like, oh. I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry to hear that because I was hoping you'd get really nervous at this point. But no, damn no, it. Not at all. Oh, damn. You're not feeling nervous? Are you? No. Okay. Is that the first question in the quiz? No. Well, that, no. was, that wasn't the first. That is the first. Now, there's a second question to come. Okay. Ready. <laughs> the Business Council of Australia has written to institutional investors to hit back against claims by climate change activist groups that the corporate lobby group is blocking changes to tackle global warming. In a letter to institutional investors uh, sent this week, BCA Chief Executive Jennifer Westacott, one of our very Mm favourites, and President Grant King, one of our very favourites, said they wanted to clarify that the group, quote, supports strong action on climate change. It goes on to say further down... Westacott and King said in the letter to big investors, the BCA is being targeted because we have sought to be transparent about the costs and trade-offs required in the necessary transition to a low emissions economy. If we are to finally achieve split infinitive a durable climate policy, we must have an open and honest debate about the impact of the changes required to become a lower emissions economy, they wrote. We support strong action on climate change combined with solutions to curtail the rapid growth in energy uh, costs and measures to improve the reliability of electricity supply in Australia. This is a long-standing policy position and represents a pragmatic approach to a global issue. The BCA and its members believe this transition should take place at the lowest possible cost to ensure that Australia's standard of living is not put at risk. Australian businesses and households must have access to energy that remains reliable, secure and affordable as the sector progressively decarbonises. Now... Question. This is the question. <laughs> that, that's the there. longest quiz question ever. Well, no, no, that's not the. That's that's the that's the preamble to the question. The question is going back to their first comment. They support strong action on climate change. Which bit of all that supports strong action on climate change? Tell me. 
can I pass? <laughs> but uh. um, I'm not sure because I can't remember the start of that that preamble once we got to the end of it. Well, the answer is that what, the, what they were saying is that we, once again, we have to put the economy ahead of yeah. tackling But do you know okay. what? On that topic, there's a whole bunch of major organisations in America who have actually now um, started to talk about having a bit more social licence and a bit more acknowledgement of the social contract to their staff and... Um, and not just putting their shareholders as the absolute bottom line. Did you read about that? No, I didn't. Yeah, no, I've no. heard that. I mean, um, heard that uh, in the New York Times. Oh. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I didn't think... didn't read the New York Times this week. Didn't you? <laughs> You're so busy with the Herald Sun. <laughs> to be, to be yeah, fair, I, I go, kind I, of cheat and I just I listen go to, to the, the real podcast. Papers, yeah, <laughs> yeah <right>. exactly. <laughs> you know what's really going on. Yeah, yeah. anyway, yeah. I, I probably won't mean much real change but it did the New York Times podcast had a really good um, long view of how shareholders have become the ultimate account you know thing that an organization has to be accountable to Mm. and all the effects of that including ignoring climate change ignoring your workers ignoring the impact on your local community well our our overseeing authorities here are telling businesses now they have to take it into account as and that you know they can be penalized if they don't it's yeah. so well, a lot of businesses growing, now yeah. are doing it because it's it's a threat to their businesses that mm. you know for no yeah, other they wouldn't reason be doing it for any other reason <laughs> no exactly <laughs> <laughs> like like trying to save the planet yeah. no. um no so that's uh, that was that one. The mm. um, a couple of interesting things. I'll, I'll do these very quickly because then we'll go to our first interview. Yeah. But um, a couple of interesting decisions. I've mentioned a few times how the government has totally stacked the Fair Work Commission, and you know, I think the last eighteen or twenty or something appointments have all come from the employer's side. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's um, an employer. This is an interesting one. An, an employer's warning that the company would be shut down if staff pursued a union agreement was not a breach of good faith bargaining because it still offered workers a choice between a union and non-union agreement. Fair workers ruled. Fair Work Commission Deputy President Bryce Cross made the finding in his decision this week to approve New South Wales contractor DTP Electrical Services' landmark non-union agreement, which broke from 15 years of deals with the ETU, the Electrical Trade Union. Um, now, this bloke, Cross, was one of several new commission members appointed by the Morrison government in December, and even though there were a number of aspects of it, that, uh, in fact, didn't even meet the better-off overall test, the boot test. He approved it, and he said that uh, even though the company sent this letter saying, look, we're going to go broke if you, if you, if you want more money, etc., so the workers agreed to that eventually, and he said the union appealed that, but he said, no, they had a choice between the union and non-union, and so he ruled in favour of the, uh, the agreement, even though in a number of cases... Um, it actually doesn't. Uh, for instance, he rejected the ETU's argument that the agreement failed the better-off overall test in comparison to the award conditions. The agreement reduced the award's casual learning of 25% to 20% and cut hourly rates for first-year apprentices. Meal and tool allowances were also lower than the award, while other allowances were removed entirely. Uh, mm. But he approved it. Yeah. Um, another one that came up this week was... Um, a senior member of the Fair Work Commission approved a construction agreement in opposition to the Commission's own analysis that it paid workers below the industry minimum. Mm. Uh, full bench overturned the excavation of mining and civil excavation company after finding Deputy President Jeff Bull approved the deal in a three-paragraph decision that failed to raise any concerns over the better-off overall test despite some rates almost 4% below the award. Um, 
The construction union which launched the appeal has used the case to question whether the Commission was letting through other underpaying deals. It is alarming that if not for the union's intervention in this matter, the Fair Work Commission would have allowed an agreement to stand that removed workers' basic rights. CFMEU National Secretary Dave Noonan said, it sort of goes on, but mm. there's a couple of... And I think it shows the danger of the way they're stacking that bench mm. there. That, uh, yeah, it doesn't have the same... Yeah, I'd like to say more about that, but we're going to move on because we've got a pretty pretty rush program this morning. Well, so, look, we'll go to our first guest who is not um, Gemma, <laughs> Gemma Cavarelli. Marie. <laughs> Marie, okay, after this break. Okay, so this is Shebop. And so is this. And this. Shebop, a program that explores feminist issues. Beginning September 2nd, tune in Mondays, 10.30am, for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you yours. to all What's of you for What's giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The bigger the reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 We've just enjoyed the pleasures of live radio. I don't think I mentioned at the start of the show who we are, by the way, but um, well, anyway, you're Mick Kimber, I'm Kevin right. Healy, and people probably don't care anyway. <laughs> um, we yeah, held on do. the line Supertory. We left we left the break going to go to Marie from the um, Save Footscray Park group, but... <laughs> She went to a message bank, I presume. We're going to get through at the time, And we've got Sue on the line now, and then Marie rang, but we're going to put her on after this, so we'll be right. Uh, We'll get there eventually. But Sue Batori, of course, we interviewed Sue previously about the damage to um, Stony Creek when she was in her capacity as Friends of Crookshank Park, but she's now also chair of the Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance, and they've got a a rally next um, Saturday, Sue. Tell us something about it. Yeah, look, it's actually this Saturday morning, 10.30, in Coolaroo, directly outside a glass uh, recycling or sort of glass sorting depot um, in Mafra Street in uh, Coolaroo. And it's right beside the notorious SKM recycling compound. 
and is um, reportedly associated with that compound. It's been described in Broadmeadows Magistrates Court last week as a catastrophic fire risk, and it's right next door to the compound that caused the 2017 Colliery Fire that caused 100 homes to be evacuated and, and, and a lot of health problems in that community. So we, when we read that in, in the paper late last week, we just knew we had to take to the streets to highlight the need for an emergency intervention by the government and the EPA to protect the community from catastrophic fire risks like sites such as this. Yeah. And I suppose it comes down ultimately to the fact you say these two are side by side, but there's you know, so many of these places around the area. Um, it comes down to the fact that over a century or more, those suburbs were seen as the dumping ground for noxious type trades, etc. in Melbourne. Um, often the owners of them would cross the bridge or before the bridge was built, cross over to the other side, back to Brighton or whatever at night. But um, there's really a need to start to start seeing those suburbs in a different light, isn't there? Well, also, Ken, I think I was just stunned yesterday. I mean, I live I live in Yarraville and very close to Brooklyn, and we all know some of the interesting industries around here. And obviously, was affected by the West Footscray warehouse fire, which, of course, uh, this Friday is the one year anniversary of that. And we don't um, we haven't lost symbolism of that either. That we're holding this rally one day after the lid blew off this whole big sorry mess mm. in, in West Footscray. Mm. And, and, you know, destroyed our local creek south of the fire site. Mm. But, but with the, you know, houses in Coolaroo um, are only 400 metres from, uh, four or 500 metres from these, these operations. And it's not just that they're there, it's the, that they've been allowed to get. Like, you would think that a, a premises like this would be on the high watch list, like the immediate intervention list for the EPA and WorkSafe, because... And yet we, re we read in the, the news that fire hydrants haven't been tested for years. Waste is piled up in front of fire protection equipment. Like, if there was a fire in there, the workers are under threat. The, the community, it could spread to the stockpiled, you know, now in receivership um, recycling premises next door where there's... And there's flammable goods everywhere in both compounds. So how on earth... Did the cause? Did the site right next to the Coolaroo 2017 fire site? How did that? Well, how was that allowed to get into this state? Mm. I, um, I read this and I was just incensed, absolutely incensed. And not only that, it's left in the hands of the local council, as 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 you know, well-meaning as the local council is. This is an, an, a state emergency issue, the, uh, protecting all the residents, thousands of residents in these suburbs is a state emergency issue. It is not a local government, single municipality issue. What, what, uh, are, you, what are you calling for at the rally? We're calling for, when there's, a, when there's catastrophic risks like this, a matter of life and death that was called in court, mm. we're calling for the EPA and the state government and the EPA to have emergency provisions like they do with bushfire risks in, in country Victoria, mm -hmm. to immediately mobilise, send people into these places, uh, work alongside the management if they have to. I mean, management of these sites over and over again have shown they're not able to protect, to keep up fire safety and to protect the interests of the community. It just To us, it seems like the interests of private enterprise are being protected at the expense of the communities that live around these sites. Mm -hmm. And... And it's not even the communities that live around them sometimes. I mean, as we've heard, found with the Camelfield fire, the smoke went up and landed in another part of Melbourne, you know? Mm. Uh, so, so all Melbourne residents should be really 
deeply concerned about this. Um, it's nothing to be complacent about. We've already had three massive fires. Firefighters are, are the ones bearing the brunt of it. Workers in mm. these places are bearing the brunt of it. But communities around Melbourne are at risk. Um, I'm an accidental activist. I never thought I'd be in a role like this, but I saw what happened in my own community. And Merlinston Creek is a few metres at the back of these compounds as well. Mm. And that feeds into the Yarra River catchment. It feeds into the bay. I mean, we don't want to see what happened in Stony Creek happen in yet another creek. A lot of these industries uh, are along waterways, as we know. So I was incensed when I read that article. Everyone in our alliance, when we heard about it, were just like, we've got to take to the streets about this. So please go to our Facebook um, page, Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance. Check out um, the information um, and come along at uh, 10.30 on Saturday. It's 82 Mafra Street in Coolaroo. And we're black because what we're concerned about is if this isn't addressed immediately, these issues aren't intervened and, and made fire safe immediately, it might might be more than just a rally we're attending. Mm. It might be a funeral. That's 10.30 so, on Saturday, by the way, at, um, at Coolaroo, yeah. Um, and, um, I mean, it's not just the um, the fact that the fires occur and the danger that follows them, but it's also people living in the area in constant fear of it happening, I would imagine. Oh, look, one of one of um, our members who's a resident lives four or 500 metres away. She says she's not a scientist, but she doesn't need to be a scientist to recognise the risks around the community that, that she's living in. Uh, you know, she sees it every day when she walks out her front door. Mm. I mean, there's giant glass mountain of stockpiled waste. Now, yeah, we know glass doesn't burn, but it's into, it's all amongst it is flammable waste. Mm. And if the building goes up and it's right next door to another um, facility that's that's storing, um, you know, highly flammable, over-stockpiled of flammable waste, it's already caused a major fire that's, that's affected people's health and wellbeing. And, and also, you look around that area and you see what else is around there. There's a, there's a chemical plant just over the road. I mean... And and there's a meat processing plant, uh, you know, in that same industrial where, where last time I think they had to throw out all the meat in the premises. Why on earth are are places that process food and places that process mm-hmm. chemicals put right next door to places that mm-hmm. have massive fire risk? It's it's. I'm just incredulous. I, I just think this whole thing is an absolute disgrace. I can't believe it's happening here in Melbourne, to be honest. Um, and so that's prompted me and many others to act. We would welcome anyone. We're going. It's going to be a, a peaceful protest. Uh, it will be a symbolic protest. Um, so families are welcome to join us on Saturday. Come out and show how much you care about the safety and of the community in Melbourne. Mm. Right, yeah. And that address again? It's 82 Mafra, M-A-F-F-R-A, Mafra Street in Coolaroo, um, and you can go to the Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance Facebook page and you'll see some more information there as well. Right, yes. Yeah, Thanks a lot. Well, just about 30 seconds, though, because we really have to go to our next yeah, interview. Sure. But, but just an update. Um, my, my person who keeps an eye on it tells me Stony Creek is still pretty ordinary. It, it hasn't really improved much. It's going to be quite some time. A lot of wonderful clean-up work has been done by Melbourne Water. They, um, they've, I guess they've done the very best with an incredibly sad situation. Um, but there's still a lot of uh, contaminated sediment in the creek. 
bed, um, particularly where the creek is wider. So, the, for instance, in Crookshank Park, the dog pond, as everyone calls it, is a wide, lovely section, was a lovely section of the creek. Dogs would love to play there, of course, and children paddle around on the stepping stones. Um, that's where the worst of the hydrocarbons and contaminants will collect right. because it's wider and, you know, not getting moved on. So please, everyone, you just don't let your kids paddle in the creek. Don't let your dogs swim in the creek. Um, the park is looking lovely and green at the moment, which is thankful. We're thankful for that. But, you know, we're not any way, shape or form allowed to touch that or can go near that water. OK, so, so look, thanks for that. And we will have to go on. But um, good luck for Saturday and good luck with the whole campaign overall. Thanks very much for your interest. Okay, radio. Bye. Sue Vittori there, who's uh, with the Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance and who's also uh, mm. friends of Crookshank Park, which is right on Stony Creek, mm -hmm. which was the creek, of course, destroyed by the West Footscray fire mm -hmm. a year ago this weekend, yep. we believe. Yeah. Okay, let's take a break, and this time we'll hopefully get Marie. Yeah. <laughs> Fraudban returned, playing the tote bandroom Sunday, September 1st. Having completed an 11-city Japanese tour, they now launch their Japanese-released album along with US split vinyl. Very special guests are Japanese label mates 20 Gilders, featuring Mitsuru Tabata of Acid Mother's Temple. Like Magnetic, the new band with members from The Scientists and Paradise Motel, plus competition team. Fraud Band, The Tote, Sunday, September 1st, Tickets $10 pre sale from the tote hotel.ostix.com.au. Casu Muin Records is a 3CR. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines, or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions and look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. OK, last week we discussed the Footscray Park issue um, with uh, Gemma Caparella. We've got Marie Party on the line. Marie, um, uh, last night the council met, there was a protest. We're just re getting an update. What was the result? Um, uh, oh, there we go. There we are. Oh, she has turned up. Sorry, Marie, we didn't hear that because we, we was going blank through the air. Can you just answer that question again? I'm sorry about that. All oh, right. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we yes. can now. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Right. So last night, about 200 or more people turned up to a protest at council meeting. Before council was to vote on altering or not altering the master plan, which would allow them to enter into firm lease negotiations and planning negotiations with Melbourne Victory Football Club to establish um, uh, themselves on Footscray Park. Um, and up until uh, Friday of last week, we really expected that what council would do is actually vote to amend the master plan, everything that they've been doing over the last four years, which we only found out about actually in uh, February... We hadn't realised that the negotiations had been so advanced with Melbourne Victory Football Club mm. over four years. 
Um, but so everything led us to believe that what they would do is um, pass the amendment to the master plan and then move along uh, with the um, with the, the plan proposal. And it was only on Friday last week, after significant and demonstrated opposition from the community, who who definitely are in favour of saying um, they don't want Melbourne Victory Football Club on the park. Yes, bring uh, a girls' a soccer academy to the western suburbs. That would be fabulous, but not on the historic heritage, well-used Footscray Park. But it was only on Friday that Council put out their um, recommendation, which was that they would reject this plan and set up instead a community advisory committee. And so we actually considered that was a huge mini kind of victory for us in the sense that they had all along planned to just put it through um, at last night's council. But because of the significant opposition of the community, they were forced to try at the 11th hour to find a way around um, their original proposal. And so what they ended up doing at council last night was rejecting their plan to amend the master plan, which would allow Melbourne Victory to start negotiations to occupy the park. So they rejected that. But what they then did was, um, as part of that same vote, they decided to set up a community advisory panel, hastily conceived um, panel with hastily conceived terms of reference Mm. and with a very unrepresentative and particularly identified members of that community advisory committee, many of whom are sports groups and organisations who've Mm. already um, articulated and expressed their support for Melbourne Victory at Footscray Park. Um, And so what they've done... So effectively what Council's done, we understand, is um, they've tried... They know they can't get it through at this stage because the opposition is so significant. But what they've tried to do is to buy some time. And so they've bought time by saying, "Okay, we'll reject it for the moment, Mm. but we'll set up this um, community advisory panel with very, very restrictive terms of reference, which relates only to things like um, looking at the benefits of the academy, uh, looking at what sort of leasing arrangements should occur. Um, So it's a it's a pretty it was a pretty terrible performance, I think, Mm. from. Maribyrnong City Council and it's very hard to work out whether they're incompetent or whether they're quite conniving mm. but the whole thing was um, was very amateurish I thought. So um, Maria it's sort of like saying what form of execution would you like? Uh, sort of yeah but we'll slow it down we'll let you have another go at it. Yeah. Um, so that, that's clearly where they're at. I think um, that the community's resolve is really strong and it's even stronger after last night so I, I think they're going to find it very difficult, but I don't think that any we have any um, we have any sort of trust or we can place any uh, faith in Maribyrnong City Council mm. to act in the interests of the public. I think the only thing that we can hope for now is that Melbourne Victory Football Club will realise that the opposition to this will not go away that, in fact, the resolve of the community will just double down now and will expand our um, our activities. And I think Melbourne Victory has to be the one that will see the writing on the wall and think, 
you know, they, they're not going to come into a community and divide it. They're not going to come into a community where the opposition to what they want to do is going to become stronger. And stronger. We're low on time, Marie, but, can, but how will the community representatives, the people on, on your, our side of this, uh, get onto this committee? Um, well, we're not sure. There's apparently um, uh, uh, there's five community representatives, and there's um, the council is saying there's a voting uh, there's a voting procedure where people can nominate, and then people can vote for them on the website. So it's very unclear about how and who will be on who will be the community reps. Let's well, bring you to one point. The Herald, you probably saw it. The Herald Sun had a story about it on Monday. It's the only time it's mentioned it ever. And it was totally pro the development, um, using the chief commissioner of police to say how wonderful it's going to be. Yeah. Um, and it just said, but a group of dog walkers has pleaded to reject, etc. But later on in the story, it says that hardly anyone walks their dogs there anyway. Um, a totally one-sided article. Did you see that? Uh, yes, but I, I think the Herald Sun has been running articles over over a period of time. The Herald Sun are big supporters of Melbourne Victory at Footscray Park. I don't know where they get this idea that the park is underutilised. Mm-hmm. Um, they clearly don't go down to the park on the weekends. They might have been down to the park one time in the middle of winter or something. <laughs> but uh, the park is uh, hugely utilised. I mean, I wonder, and I think we need to do some more, um, you know, uh, extracting information from the council. But I wonder whether Melbourne on Council has used this term in their expressions of interest or negotiations with Melbourne Victory Club, Melbourne mm. Victory Football Club, mm. because the term underutilisation has been used about 10,000 times mm. in this discussion. So that word came from somewhere. I'd like to know where it came yeah, from. All right. Look, we're going to have to leave it there for this morning, but we'll keep in touch on this, Marie, because it's going to be ongoing, obviously. But thanks it for your really update. Thanks, Kevin. Okay, Bye. thanks a lot. Um, okay, Marie Bar party there, and um, I knew her years ago. She was anyway. That's another question. Uh, <laughs> and, we've got uh, a song about <clears throat> Footscray Park, and I tried to play it last time, I couldn't, but I won't play it now. But I'll play it later in okay, the show. Okay, we're going to so. go now to uh, Libby Porter and talk about uh, the Jabberung issue. Yeah. yeah. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions and look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. Okay, and okay, Libby Porter on the line. Libby, um, Libby's at RMIT. What's, um, what's the title there again? You can tell us, Meg, you've got it in front oh, of you. Maybe Libby should tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Vice-Chancellor's Principal Research Fellow, right? <laughs> 
something like that. Yeah, yeah I'm in the yeah. Centre for Urban Research Whatever. at uh, RMIT. It's a lovely title, Libby. <laughs> okay, Libby, though, um, you went up to um, to Ararat last week to the um, to the Jabberwung um, Embassy, and uh, while you don't want to speak, obviously, on behalf of the Indigenous people, what, what was your experience? Uh, well, an incredibly rich and, and um, powerful one, of course. It's an incredible place. Um, and it's a, I think for anyone who's um, standing in solidarity with Jabrung people, it's an enormous privilege to be invited um, to do that. And, um, you know, we should take that invitation really seriously and treat it with the respect it, it deserves. Mm. Yeah. This morning on... Um, there was an, I only caught a bit of it because I had to fly out to here, jump on the bike and get over here. But, but the ABC interviewed the... the the um, roads minister this morning, um, and she was arguing, in fact, that they've saved two trees and none of the other trees are significant. Do you comment on that? Well, that's not what the, certainly the people are saying, um, and I think they the, should be the best judge of what trees mm. are significant and what trees aren't. Mm. Um, and I think it's a pretty flawed system. It should indicate how flawed a system we have when the very people who's... Um, whose sovereignty is being practised and who are the people who speak for that country and that place aren't listened to and their their views are dismissed as if, you know, a bunch of white people in government would know anything about what's significant and what isn't. Um, and as The Age reported on the weekend, uh, there appears to be information that hasn't been appropriately considered, mm. um, key information. So, you know, it seems that this process is pretty broken um, and really needs to be uh, re reassessed and re-understood. But really with um, Jabberung people who uh, are on country there and have been maintaining that presence, um, they need to be right at the centre of that negotiation and, um, and, be, and be treated with respect and seriously um, in order to resolve it. I mean, I guess the other thing to say is, and certainly the thing, the thing I've learned um, and, and am learning, mm. um, is that this isn't just about individual trees. You know, our, our understanding as non-Indigenous people of specific things in landscapes is so thin, it's so mm. impoverished because mm. we don't understand how things are connected together mm. in landscape. Yep. So the, all of those, to knock down one tree and save another mm. kind of defeats, the, it isn't really the point. Um, the, the point is that that landscape is knitted together. You know, the people speak about that the roots of the trees are connected under the ground, that the trees reach towards each other, the trees are knitted into the story and law of Jabberung people. Um, you know, people have spoken, um, particularly uh, Zelenak Jabmara has spoken incredibly powerfully of how he feels about those trees as kin, as his children as, or as his grandparents and, you know, how you know, that whole kinship system is, is knitted into that. So, um, you know, it's really beholden on non-Indigenous society to listen more carefully to that. Mm. Um, and we're not doing that at the moment and that's why we're in this mess. Mm. How, what, part of your research, as I understand it, is looking at how planning and, and urban development contribute to displacement. And, that's right, and yeah. and that that heritage that we have from the times of colonialism, colonial settlement. Mm. How do you see that as continuing in in this incidence? Well, I think it, this incident really lays bare exactly mm. how it's continuing. Um, so you know, the things that come to count as being cherished, being mm. cherished, uh, are. are 
uh, obviously things that um, in non-Indigenous society says are worthy of, of value um, and they're generally not the things that um, Indigenous people value and want to cherish um, and, and, and we think of them in different ways. So even the word heritage um, is a really... Um, impoverished kind of concept. It mm. does not at all encapsulate or, or um, uh, marry up to how um, Indigenous people see a, a living culture. I mean, this is a living culture. It's a living and practised sovereignty. Mm. Um, so sort of reducing it to heritage like, you know, a building facade or something mm. like, we, like non-Indigenous people think about like European heritage is so kind of um, unacceptable and, and not appropriate for what we're talking about here. Um, and of course, you know, the forms of urban development and urban planning um, have both historically and today continued to be um, highly destructive and damaging um, because they're so damaging of landscape, um, mm. which is not to say that we shouldn't have growth and development. Of course we need to, but it is actually possible to um, to have both. And we can, uh, you know, house ourselves and, and move ourselves around without being quite so damaging mm. um, on the environment. We just got to get better at doing that and listening more carefully to to um, the people who really understand this country better than we do. Mm. Although it's unfair to say they don't understand heritage because they reckon the Eastern Freeway now has to be um, <laughs> heritage. And uh, also, of course, I suppose the, I mean, the obvious, there's an obvious irony in that, uh, a white sacred site. Uh, but also, uh, you know, parallel to that, the, the treaty negotiations going on, all this happening at the same time mm. is quite mm. ironic, isn't it? Uh, highly so, but I think really speaks to um, the way in which, you know, if we think about it as a kind of settler colonial construct, um, is, is, is happening perpetually. Like, it, mm. it, it hasn't ended. We don't live outside the time of colonisation because mm. this is what colonisation does. So in its current form, it convinces or tries to convince both in, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people that somehow things are better than they were, you know, in the frontier period or whatever. Um, but it does so in forms that continue to uh, deny Indigenous sovereignty. They continue to damage Indigenous places an Indigenous country. They continue to marginalise Indigenous people. They continue to ignore in, uh, you know, practised Indigenous political authority. Um, all of those things are fundamental to how settler colonialism continues to exist so that we can all still be here, um, but not on the right footing. So I think the, the question is not necessarily for you know, non-Indigenous people necessarily to go away, um, because I guess we belong here too now, um, but we have to find a different way of belonging here. We have to be able to live lawfully, if you like, on, on mm. um, different terms um, in the country. So the notion that we could do these things and um, be in a treaty negotiation is, of course, at face value, seems ironic um, or seems, you know, strange in some ways. And yet I think really speaks to how uh, the, the current form of settler colonialism really works. So we convince ourselves that we're doing a good thing with treaty negotiations when, in fact, um, we're not really doing anything at all. It's just hollow mm -hmm. and empty. Um, it, it would seem that way um, because we're not taking seriously um, these, these really important issues um, that should be right at the heart of a treaty negotiation and yet they're not. Mm. One of the things is... Um the way that uh, all of the procedures and legislation and the psychology of, of mm. these engagements are so um, tied up with the whole colonialism that, that, as you say, continues. I just, How do you see that getting untangled, if that makes sense? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that's, 
a very good question. <laughs> yeah. Um, and look, there are there are many ways to think about this, and I can only speak, of course, as a non-Indigenous person who would prefer that we mm. found a better type of conversation mm. to have. Mm. Um, there are many, many calls for decolonisation, mm. um, and 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 of course, you know, that's a very uh, contentious, I guess, issue to think about what would that look like and on mm-hmm. whose terms. Um, and of course, it must be um, on the terms of, uh, of Indigenous, you know, peoples and their their practice sovereignties. Mm-hmm. Um, but for speaking as a non-Indigenous person, you know, I think a huge part of that has to be getting some truth-telling, getting to grips mm-hmm. with both our history, but also understanding how we're here and on whose terms we're here, um, and and coming into a better relationship, I guess, with um, with, with what has always been here, which is the practice of um, Indigenous sovereignties all, all over the what we now call um, Australia. Mm. So I think, you know, certainly as a non-Indigenous person, my my role, as I see it, is to educate myself, educate my community, um, you know, be part of uh, conversations that try and change and mature the nature of that relationship so that we can have a better kind of conversation that isn't knitted in all the time to mm. this highly colonial kind of construct about, you know, what non-Indigenous law is the final say, mm. um, and you know you have to conform and and make yourselves you know eligible to to non-indigenous law for us to kind of recognise you and and want to want to negotiate. So I think that's a really really flawed way to proceed, and we have to find a better way to do that. Mm. Yeah, but it also, of course, in purely transport terms. I mean, we, in the city we know, you know roads go everywhere and public transport's let run down for, for eons. Mm. Uh, but there again, and they're building this this hive, they want to build this wonderful road uh, for safety, etc. But beyond Ararat, public transport is is almost non-existent. It's a bus every couple of hours into the Wimbledon mm. Mallee, and there's towns out there that, that exist with very little public transport at all. So, that's right. So, so again, I mean, I remember, I remember the time when there was a train. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There used to be a train. Well, in fact, it's ironic now. The overland still, because a friend of mine lives at Matoa, and he's got very poor public transport, but the overland goes through, but it doesn't mm. stop. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. so, now, one would have thought at least if someone wanted to get on or off, they might actually stop. Mm. But you're right. That's right. right. Yeah. We, we, we're not thinking in very clever terms and certainly not in very long-term terms about um, the way in which we think about mobility um, and accessibility sustainably across the country. I mean, we're locked into um, an apparent you know, path that is simply about carbon-intensive forms of transport, um, like roads, uh, which are extremely damaging, not just in the building of them and in the and, and the form of their construction itself, but, of course, you know, generate all of the, the costs, um, environmental costs and social costs that we know come with them, which is not at, at all to say that, you know, those those communities sh- should be left high and dry with, with a poor road system, um, and there are real accessibility needs there. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, and, of course, you know, safety is important. All of those things are tremendously important but there are a range of options on the table as there always are and the notion that you know there is no alternative is just stupid mm. and there is always an alternative if, if if we hear people say there's no alternative then they're either telling porkies or they lack imagination um, and they and they lack the ability to to be able to find credible um, feasible alternatives which of course exist so 
Mm. And I think we have to go back to the drawing board and listen properly to um, what might be possible, what's the least damaging option, what delivers um, on, on uh, a range of social, ecological and, and economic needs, um, and consider the ways in which we're thinking about our, our transport future um, as, as part of this conversation. And it should be part of treaty conversation as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it never is considered uh, what will be the land take, what will be the ecological cost, what will be the cultural cost um, of, the, of the kinds of transport and other kinds of economic decisions we make. Um, so, we, you know, we're really not having that kind of mature treaty conversation in mm. Victoria, unfortunately. And do you think in this instance and others like it that the uh, unwillingness of development and government to take these issues seriously and to believe in Aboriginal people when they speak um, is is on purpose or an unintended side effect of this um, mindset? I think it's hard to say. Yeah. Um, I, I think there are always a range of um, issues. I mean, you know, we know that governments get captured by certain kinds of interests and influences. Um, we also know that, you know, left hands don't speak to right hands mm -hmm. in governments and, mm -hmm. you know, there's all that kind of... Uh, bureaucracy and inertia that happens in, in public policy decision making and, mm -hmm. and, and so on. So I'm, look, I think it's a pretty complex kind of issue, but at the heart of it is um, an assumption that uh, non-Indigenous society and, and law structures sort of know what's best mm -hmm. um, and an unwillingness to, to step back and think maybe we don't have all the answers um, mm. and that maybe we're a huge part of the problem. Indeed, we are a huge part of the problem. Um, and that's not to say that um, we can't find ways to fix that, but that we need to have a different kind of conversation. And there just isn't willingness to admit those kinds of things um, and to listen properly to mm. um, to country and to people of country. And that's really what I hear Jaburung people and many, many other Indigenous people around Australia and around the world are saying. It's a very, actually quite simple message. Mm. Um, and uh, non-Indigenous society is still not hearing it um, or mostly not hearing it. Mm, including the Premier. He, this week he came out and said um, that arrests would be regrettable at the site but that work needed to begin and protesters shouldn't stay in the way. I would always respect people's right to peacefully protest but I think the point's been made and people now need mm. to peacefully move on, he said. Now, that's the equivalent of what they always say which really means you can protest as long as you're totally ineffective, I would have thought. Indeed it does. Um, and, and isn't that a, an incredibly uh, colonialist kind of statement when you think about um, what he's saying in relationship to uh, what Jabberung people are doing, which is practising their sovereignty? So who is he to evict the, the first peoples from that country off their own land? Mm. And, and arrest them for, you know, you know, the points being made now, time to move on. Um, I mean, this is precisely how colonisation works and continues to work. Um, one thing, you know, to, to make that statement about non-Indigenous people, but um, mm. to, to threaten um, Jabberung people with that kind of um, colonialist violence, basically, is... is um, really telling of the way in which this government is prepared to treat with um, Indigenous people. Yeah. I know you've got to go uh, pretty soon, actually. Um, but um, Libby, um, when you have to go, just let us know. But uh, sure. back back in the camp, what what is the mood there? Is there a, is there a mood of optimism? 
Um, look, I haven't been there for, for a few days now, so I, I wouldn't like to comment. When I, but when I was there, it was um, hugely optimistic um, and, uh, and, and, of course, you know, seeing that many people arrive uh, and in solidarity, having been invited to country and saying, yes, we're going to stand alongside you, um, it certainly felt like it was a, an amazing um, kind of expression of, of community support um, and, and wide-ranging support. We've, we were talking to people who'd driven from Canberra and all sorts of other places to, uh, to stand in solidarity with Jabarong people there. And so um, I can only imagine that that must be enormously um, uplifting for, for people. Um, I, but I can't comment on, on what the mood is there just at the moment. Mm. Mm. But thank you for the opportunity to, to uh, speak on this important issue. It's um, you know really important that people understand some of the complexities of this of this particular incident and um, mm. and keep learning a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yep, and and to listen to the 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 sovereign nations on the land that that we're on. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, right, Libby. Look, we'll let you go because I know you've got to be somewhere else by 10 o'clock. But um, look, <laughs> Thank thanks, you. thanks for your time this morning. And it's been. It's my pleasure. Really okay, thanks a lot. Thanks. Right. Oh. Libby Porter look, yeah. there, who's RMIT, she's a professor of something out there. But, uh. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, I mean, this is the thing. Like, people will certainly hear um, a lot about uh, the Jabarong Embassy on 3CR. And um, it's good to get that look of how, you know, this analysis of, of how these things happen and um, mm. certainly other shows on 3CR will, will talk about this. But I think... Um, well, we haven't covered it as much because, in fact, other, other programs exactly. are talking about it a hell of a lot. Yeah. And, and obviously the spokespeople for that are, are really are really mm. working hard yeah. and, and busy. And Libby was on the Bricky Show Monday, in fact, about it as well. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I would say is that a friend of mine went up recently and... Um, you know, there's a lot of conversation about it on Facebook. There's a lot of conversation happening. And at the time when she was there, there wasn't that many people there. Mm. And I know there have been times when there's been a lot of people. But, um, yeah, it's that's uh, actually translating that into action is a really powerful thing uh, to do. And it's getting into the news more and more now. Like it hasn't had that, – that's the – the Herald Sun had a story on Monday that was totally pro-road, and I just mm. quoted Andrews from that story. Yeah. Uh, but um, there was also a story in The Age the other day, um, Sunday Age, last week, um, about um, up to $250 million and 13 hectares of open space equivalent to seven times the playing surface of the MCG could be saved when building the $15 billion Northeast Link. And an academic's come up with an idea, um, transport planners come up with an idea that could you know, save a lot there. Mm. But that, that brings us to the fact that uh, while the government has decided that the Eastern Freeway should be a heritage thing, it's really connected to that Northeast Link, mm. um, which will... Not only uh, which will, will will just not only force the widening of the Eastern Freeway, but it will also, as we've mentioned before, take away the option of ever having a a train, a, a train line along mm. there, which was the original mm. the original reserve was about. And, mm. But it, we've never seen the train line. So, you know, Libby's point was just all about. Unfortunately, roads, roads, roads. Which this program makes makes that point fairly regularly. It's but frustrating. It's on, ongoing. On so many it's ongoing. Fronts. Yeah. Um, but also, as, as again, it's important, as Libby said, that, that we respect the, mm. the local people and let them control the, uh, the campaign. Yeah, why not? I mean, yeah. believe, believe yeah. what they say. Yeah. Yeah, it's not too big of a stretch. Lydia Thorpe was on Radio National this morning talking yeah. about it, so it got made Radio National New, New Breakfast, and then it was followed up with, a, with the Transport Minister, mm. uh, Jacinta Allen, 
who was really struggling as I went out the door and turned the radio off. Uh, <laughs> she was struggling with that, that issue that, that Libby read about the report that had been made that wasn't actually, to the age mentioned the other day, that... Uh, that wasn't uh, taken into consideration and she was explaining why it wasn't <laughs> and having a bit of trouble as I went out the door. But, I, uh, I want to leave enough time to play yeah. this song oh, about yes, the Footscray song. Park. Okay, yeah. Should we put it on now? Yeah, well, that's, that's it for the show then, is it? Next, yeah. week's, next week's transport. And we should, before we go, thank you, Jeannie. She was supposed to come in today for our last program, but yeah. she couldn't make it. That's why I'm here. I was supposed to be out, not here. <laughs> uh, but um, we, we must Sorry. thank her for the time she's given to this program <laughs> and the work she's put in. Yeah. It's been so good to work with her. Yep. I'm very sad. But maybe she'll maybe she'll visit sometimes. Yeah. So the council have a Footscray Park master plan. A part of it is to hand over public land. So Melbourne Victory build a soccer academy. To say it's disuse and passive isn't reality. A large part of the park is going to be lost. Given to a private company for no cost. The precious floodplains, what they will be leasing. Less space as our population's increasing. The park's for the people, not for profit, thank you. Locals pay rent, but Melbourne Victory won't have to. The second richest sports team in the country. Why should they get public land for free? Three soccer fields are what they want to introduce. The Western Lawn would mainly be for private use. A beautiful view is what they're going to spoil. A hybrid toxic turf won't be good for the soil. They want to build 10 floodlight towers there. Now it's a place only a select few can share. Council said the land was disused, that isn't fair. They're the ones that left it in a state of disrepair. The grounds don't get used. We see through the lies Cause how can a view be underutilized Some kids don't play sport and go for the serenity So they'll be excluded from this great amenity Losing the space for many will be devastating Where will the open space be for future generations? Council should live up to people's expectations And protect one of Footscray's only open spaces News of reckon the park is hard to hear It's been around for over a hundred years It was built by the people of Footscray, don't take the natural beauty of it away this land should never be up for grabs, one of the biggest Edwardian parks this country has so to mess it up would be twisted, Footscray Park is heritage listed they want to give a corporate sports team tenancy, having no social conscience is not right ethically council member Stephen Wall don't leave us saddened, you said if people don't want this it won't happen out here in the city of Marabinong, there is already so much sport going on. How will people feel when the stunning view is?